Uh, thanks again, guys. It's really wonderful to have you helping us with worship this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 73, or you can find it printed in your bulletin as well. We're, gonna, we're continuing our series in the Wisdom Psalms, those psalms in the Bible, those songs that were written uh, to help us learn to deal with the complexities of life and navigate those complexities with wisdom. So Psalm 73, and uh, this is quickly becoming one of my favorite psalms. I, I wasn't particularly familiar with it before studying for this, but uh, the, I think you'll find as we, as we unpack it that it, it explains the journey that we all find ourselves on at some point, and it's really a, a journey of desire and doubt. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite commentators said it this way, uh, this psalm is the story of a bitter and despairing search which has now been rewarded beyond all expectation. We're all on a bitter and despairing search so much of the time, and, and we long for the reward that is beyond all expectation. So there's something here for all of us. And uh, let's dive in by, by reading the psalm and then praying. Psalm 73. Uh, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I've said, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be the desire of our hearts, that you would be the one that fulfills all the longings that we have, that you would convict us of sin, that you'd bring us into alignment with your spirit, that you'd remind us of the joy of the gospel, and that you'd carry us through all of our journeys of doubt and desire to the glorious end that you have waiting for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. If, if you look at verse 1, 
Asaph starts his journey in a place uh, at the end of the story. He kind of looks back and says, God is surely good to Israel. So he's kind of looking after this whole journey of doubt and desire is over. He's looking back and saying, that was my starting point. I started with God is good. And then I went on and began to doubt that question, that premise. And many of us, we doubt God's goodness at times, maybe for similar reasons that we'll see Asaph do it here. But we begin with the, the foundational truth that God is good. And he's good to Israel, that is, his people that he has chosen and set his love on for no other reason than that he has chosen them and loved them. Purely by grace, he said, I will be good to you. But there's a particular subset of those people that he loves to be good to, and those, that's those that are pure in heart. And those that are pure in heart are those that have embraced God as their one desire. That they've let all the other desires of life uh, fall away, and the one thing that they want to do is, to, is the will of God, to follow him. And this verse also tells us that there's, in every congregation, in every group of Israelites, in every group of Christians, there are those that are just culturally Christians and, is, and Jewish, and there's those that embrace the Lord from the heart. That no matter where you go, there are people that are walking through the motions, and there are those that have embraced God from the heart. And Asaph is saying that for him, he was one of the pure. He was the one who was walking with the Lord. He was, he was on the right path. He was, he was doing the wise thing. He was living out his life, and he had the desire for God above everything else. And he knew that with that desire came the blessing of God in his life, that God would surely be good to him. So if you're, if you're pure in heart, we can have confidence that God is good to us. But like Asaph, many of the times, uh, we go to verse 2. We come to a twist in our road. We come to a doubt that springs up in our path. And for Asaph, his doubt was uh, the goodness of God. He said in verse 2, uh, for I, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I what? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's all these people out there, God, that are doing terrible things. They're, they're not following your way. They're certainly not pure in heart. They're saying they're believers. They, they maybe come to temple on certain feast days or certain special holy days, but they're not actually walking with you, and they're getting away with it. And that causes me to wonder, why do I go through all this effort to be good if, I'm, if they're going to get all the rewards and I'm going to just not get what I feel like I deserve? But what's really interesting is that he doesn't just equate his doubt as a mental problem. It's not a purely philosophical exercise for him. And this is helpful for all of us because we all come to a doubt in our lives and we wonder, how do we solve this problem? How do we reconcile the goodness of God with the oppression that we see in our city even, or the, the way that it seems like wicked people get away with stuff? But Asaph looks deeper and he says, in verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he shows us that it's good to look beneath the mental level to the moral level of all of our questions about God. That behind all of our doubts, there is a desire that's pushing that doubt in particular to the forefront of our minds. And so we should ask ourselves, what is, what is driving my doubt? What is behind this? Why does this doubt in particular hit me at this particular time. If you're doubting, for instance, the existence of God, maybe consider the option that it's not just the mental wondering of whether God exists that you're questioning, but, but maybe the moral question of, 
Am I willing to submit to an authority outside of myself? And is that hard for me? Or, or if you're doubting God's goodness like Asaph, maybe consider the option that it's really that you just feel envious of what other people have that you don't have. That's the brilliance and the wisdom of Asaph is that he looks at his doubt and he realizes there's something else underneath there. And for him, he's willing to go right to the root and say, it's envy. And envy is that desire that is corrupted, that wants good things, but wants them from someone else, that, that sees what other people are getting and says, why don't I have that? I want that. It's, it's, it's wanting something that's not yours and being jealous of someone else because they seem to get something that you don't have. So he's pretty, for lack of a better word, savage with his own heart, right? He, he says, I'm pure in heart, but then the very next line he says, I'm really just an envious person. And it's all because he sees the wickedness of these people that are prospering. Now, when we come to our doubts and we, we, we follow Asaph's wisdom we, and we ask ourselves, what is the desire that's pushing that doubt? That's a great place to start, but we know that it doesn't solve our problem. We might still have the doubt, both moral and mental. And that's kind of when you come to the crossroads. And the question at that point is, will you get lost in the bitterness of the envy or will you bring your doubt to the Lord? And Asaph, for a while, decides to get lost in the bitterness of his envy. If you look at verse four, uh, verse four, he begins to describe all over and over all the problems that he sees, why this is so problematic for him. Uh, these rich people, they have no pangs until death. They seem to have pain-free lives, and I'm sitting here with a lot of pain, God. Uh, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're eating all this great food, and I'm just kind of getting by. Uh, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of us. They seem to just kind of skate through life. They're getting along. They're not worried about anything. And because of this, not only are they living this way, they're, they're getting proud. They think they deserve the things that they've gotten, that they've, as if they've worked hard for them. And they're in their pride. They've ascended to positions of power in their society. And in verse 7, verse 6, they are now violent has covered them as a garment, that they're beginning to oppress the poor. They're not only just rich because they're hardworking, they're rich because they're sucking the resources from the people below them. And they've begun to uh, swell up with pride. And if you look at verse 8, they're, they're beginning to not only do that, but there's now thinking that their arrogance is reaching a height where they're saying, God isn't even going to be able to stop me. It says that their, their tongue struts through the earth, which is a great phrase. You can just imagine little tongues walking around, blaspheming God and, and oppressing other people. And he summarizes all that in verse 12. He says, they're always at ease. They increase in riches. In other words, they don't even have to work and they still make more money. And I think all of us have felt this way at some point when, when the paycheck wasn't quite lining up and we wondered, how could somebody else who can just sit there and make all this passive income when I'm over here, you know, paycheck to paycheck, trying to make it happen. But are we savage enough with our own hearts to say that that's just not a doubt, but it's actually envy? Are we willing to follow Asaph's wisdom in that? That's kind of the question that he leaves us with. But as he's out there uh, kind of spiraling here, saying more and more how they're, how they're falling into this, he becomes... Uh, more and more bitter. And you can see that down in verses uh, 21 and 22. As he reflects back later, he says, my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. 
that all of this dwelling on the doubt without addressing the moral side has led him into anger and bitterness and cynicism and frustration. And the more that he goes into that, the deeper he goes in that direction and the further he, his anger takes him to where you almost wonder if Asaph is going to do something about it. You wonder if he's going to kind of be oppressive back to the oppressors. That's, the, that's what many people in our modern day think we should do. People that are oppressive and that are, you know, big government or, or big business or whoever's the oppressor needs to be brought down through their own form of oppression, that we should respond in kind and, and bring them, knock their legs underneath them and bring them to our level so that we can all uh, kind of struggle together. But Asaph doesn't do that. And that's helpful because the reason he doesn't do it is because he finds a home base. As he's lost in the woods of his own bitterness and anger, he decides, uh, he comes to the end of himself. If you look at verse what, 16, but I, when I thought how to understand all this, as I continued to wrap my mind around it, it just got harder and harder to carry. And it became to me a wearisome task. And so we all have doubts where we're constantly going over them in our mind. But what Asaph is saying is that those tasks, those doubts become wearisome to us if we don't address the moral side. If we simply persist in saying that this is a mental philosophical issue that I need to figure out, and you keep saying, why is this happening, God? Why, why, why? And we don't say, what's driving this? Where's my heart in all this? How do I feel about this? What is the desire behind this doubt? Then we begin to be tired and we begin to be weary because it's hard to sustain a faith when you're doubting it all the time. It's hard to sustain a faith when you're spiraling in doubt. And Asaph then kind of becomes prototypical for us in that he becomes so weary that he has nowhere else to go. He thinks, what else do I have to lose I should at least go to God. Maybe God will have an answer for my doubts. And so in verse 17, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. In other words, he comes back to a waypoint. He finds a refuge in the middle of his doubts. He comes back to the sanctuary, which is the place that the Jews would worship every week. And that's what church is. It is a sanctuary for your doubts, a place where you can lift up your doubts to God in honest earnest, serious questions, and not worry that he's going to be angry about them. But not only can you lift up your philosophical doubts, you can lift up your moral doubts as well. God, I, I think maybe my heart is going towards this because I'm just envious of what other people have. And to be able to say that in honesty, where else in society can you do that but in God's house? Where else can you be honest with who you are and have the, the, the courage to be savage with your own heart and honest to a point of self-depreciation. That's the joy that happens when you come into the sanctuary. And so we, we want to follow Asaph. When we come to that place of doubt, it's so easy to pull back and wonder and, and try to solve it on our own, to, to look at YouTube videos and read philosophical discourses and, and ask questions of our, our friends and try not to solve it with God but we are encouraged to bring our doubts into the sanctuary because it is there that Asaph meets God. It says at the end of verse 17, then I discerned their end. And by end, he means their destiny. 
that the answer to all his doubts was really that his perspective was too small. And so often with our doubts, that is the, that is the problem. We think that we have a large enough brain to figure it out. But most of the time, it is only an eternal perspective that allows our doubts to cool down. And for Asaph, he realized, if you keep reading, that God puts the wicked people in slippery places, that he makes them fall to ruin, that they're destroyed in a moment, that they're swept away, that they're like dreamers, that when they wake, their life is like a dream. They're living this high life. They're, they're doing all the things that everyone thinks that you should be doing to be successful and fun and have a fulfilling experience in life. But then one day when they die, they're going to wake up and meet God. And that then they will receive justice. And that is the, the fascinating and wonderful truth about the Christian faith is that there is justice for the wicked. That it's not on us to bring the oppressor down. That it's not on us to make sure that everybody gets justice. But that the Lord brings justice. And that we can trust him to do that if we open our scope to the broadness of eternity. And quit thinking so narrow-mindedly about uh, what life is and what it entails and, and how it should be lived. But when, Je- when Asaph finally became weary enough to bring his doubt to God, suddenly God opened his his mind to see that there was something greater going on, that he was in control and that he would bring justice when it was time. And he found that in the sanctuary. But notice um, how he found that. He doesn't attribute it to his own moral effort. He attributes to God's grace. If you look at verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you because what? You hold my right hand. If you think uh, faith is kind of like this, there's two people walking into one of those uh, shallow entry pools, and it's a father and a little child. Both hold on to each other. That's what faith is. It's clinging to God in faith. I believe you're good even though I'm doubting it right now. But if that child's hand slips, as children's hands do, who's the one that's really holding on in that scenario? God is the Father whose hand is strong and holds us, even when we, of little faith, slip away and and want to run into the water on our own. His hand holds us in grace. And that's as Asaph goes into the sanctuary and he's reminded of that truth, that's the truth that comes back to him. He looks back and he says, wow, you were holding me that whole time. But not only were you holding me, your grace was counseling me. You were the one that, that opened up the visage of my imagination and showed me that everything, the, the, the eternal perspective I needed to, to finally under, uh, get around my, my doubt. So his grace holds him and counsels him. But the, the rhetorical climax, the, the thing that so grabs me about this psalm and, and most people that read it is verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Grace has completely reoriented Asaph's desires. Instead of wanting and being envious of what the rich have, he's now wanting only God. Instead of longing for other gods and something that can get him out of his, his frustration, his bitterness, his anger, he's now wanting God alone. And that's what grace does when it comes into our hearts. It completely reorients our desires. It changes what we want. 
That's what grace is. It, it is a reorientation of what we want from the things that we want to God himself, to his glory alone. There's, there's almost no greater statement of faith in the Old Testament than this, that whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. You come to these words and you're just stopped by the power of his faith. And you think, how did you get to that place? And he said, in the, and it's so great because he's given the whole story. He didn't just say, it could have just been these two verses, you know? Whom have I in heaven but you? But instead, he gives us the whole backstory. No, I, I thought God was good, and then I doubted, and I went through this whole journey of doubt, and I struggled with my desires, and I had to get savage with myself, and I had to realize that I was envious. And when I actually realized what was going on, when I got to the root of the problem, then I was able to bring it to God, and he was able to forgive me, and that's when my desires change, that it's in our confessions of faith, of the, the, the sin in our hearts that are desires are flipped and our love for God is ignited. But that's not the way it always goes. Um, there are some times when we get stuck in that anger and that bitterness and that reproach and that frustration and it doesn't, we, we don't look at our hearts and we stay in that spiral place. If you've ever read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, that's what happens to the main character, Rashkolnikov. Rashkolnikov is this law student who is studying earnestly in the law. He comes from a Christian society, but he's kind of been influenced by the intellectual elite of his day that are saying that God is dead and that there's no reason to continue to believe. There's too much wickedness in the world to believe in God. How could he be good and still, do the, still let the things happen that happen? And so Roshkalnikov has all these questions. And on top of all those questions, he's got a really hard life. His mother is really sick. His sister is about to marry a tyrannical guy who she says she loves, but, she, but he knows that she's just saying that because he turns out to be rich. And he, she thinks that if she marries him, then she'll be able to get her new husband to pay for Roshkalnikov's law school. But he knows that's a lie, so he doesn't want her to marry her. So he's worried about his sister. He's worried about his mom. He's also dirt poor, and he has nothing left. So what does he decide to do? He, he doesn't go to the sanctuary. No, he, he decides to take some of his, his possessions, his last possessions, and go to a pawn break, broker and, and pawn them off and try to make enough money so that he can get out of his, his problem. But as he goes to the pawnbroker, he, he finds uh, someone who is very wealthy, but who's wealthy because they have cheated other people that she has this, um, this chest of gold and jewels that she's kept that are precious to her, but that she's gotten because she's, she's swindled people out of their goods. And not only is she a dishonest pawnbroker, she's also an abuse, abusive to her niece who she beats regularly. And he sees this as he goes to visit the pawnbroker and he becomes very frustrated, very incensed that, that this woman is so wicked and yet so rich while he is so poor and trying to live a good life, trying to think about issues of justice and mercy, become a lawyer, uh, do good in his society. And so the plan hatches in his mind, instead of going to the sanctuary, why don't I just take her out? Oh, I could kill her and then I could get her money and she would no longer be able to oppress her sister or anyone else in this neighborhood. So that's what he does. He goes in, he murders this woman with an ax, he gets away with the murder. 
And when he gets away with it, he suddenly realizes that he's a very different person than he was when he was only contemplating the murder, that it completely changed his heart. And he, he becomes so racked with guilt that he doesn't even touch the money. He buries it in a hole and he, he tries to figure out psychologically a way to assuage his guilt, but he can't. And so eventually he turns himself in. And the, the, the lesson there is that when you come to the doubts in your life, you all, we all get lost in the forest at some point. But the question is, will you find the waypoint of the sanctuary? Will it's imperative that you, that you come back at some point to bring not only the mental doubt, but the moral peace of your heart that's enraptured with that doubt to God? Because if you don't, you don't know the consequences of your actions at that point. You don't know what could happen, where those doubts might lead you. And Asaph is saying to us that we have, a, have the joy of bringing our doubts into, into the sanctuary, of expressing them to God, that there's nothing wrong with doubting as long as you bring it to the Lord. When you think about how Jesus responded to the oppression of his day, he didn't respond by calling down the angels, though he said he could. He responded by submitting himself to the oppression in order to expose it. He died an unjust death at the hands of powerful, rich people that didn't deserve to kill him, even though he had done nothing wrong, in order to set us free so that we could have the confidence of knowing that no matter what sins we carry, we can confess them to him, and so that we can have the confidence of knowing that he will bring justice in the end at the right time, and that we don't have to take it for ourselves. So this frees us to love our neighbor. This frees us to express our doubts to God, and it frees us to be savage with our own hearts so that we can truly know ourselves better than the superficial world around us. So let's bring all of our doubts to God. Let's figure out the desire behind them, and let's follow Asaph on this wise path of bringing our doubts to the Father. Let's pray.